This is episode number 30 of the Founder Podcast with Collis Taid. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high-quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, hope you're having a great evening. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm your host of the Founder Podcast. And today I bring you a very, very cool guest. His name is Collis Taid, and he is the founder of Invato, and that is uh, their parent company. They have eight online marketplaces selling creative stock, themes, graphics, video, audio, plugins, photography, 3D flash, you name it. So you probably have not heard of Invato before, but I'm sure you heard of their websites like Theme Forest, Graphic River, Audio Jungle, Photo Dune, Code Canyon, just to name a few. Theme Forest was actually the 88th most trafficked website in the world. So we have an inside seat on how someone like Collis thinks and operates and how his business started. And uh, I think you're really going to like this interview. Something that sat with me that I took away because every single one of these interviews I do, you know, I've done over hundreds of interviews now, every single one, I always take away one thing and I will call upon that one thing sometimes when I'm making business decisions or when I'm speaking to somebody. And uh, I just like to share with you the thing that I took away from this interview. And what that was, was, you know, Invito have so many different marketplaces and they keep launching, launching, launching. And I said to Collis, well, wouldn't it make sense to just focus on one marketplace? How do you how do you evaluate those ideas? How do you know which ones to choose? And he said, well, when I write them down and I've got a, a whole ton of notepads, I, I spoke to Collis in person actually because uh, they are situated in Melbourne. And uh, he showed me he's got like, you know, 10s, 20, 30, 30 different scrapbooks of all these ideas. And I said, which, like, how do you know what ones to pursue? And he said, well, I think if I could boil it down to one thing, I choose the ones that just keep coming back to me and that excite me the most. So ever since speaking to Collis, that's how I make some of my decisions. Like, you know, that's how I know which products to launch. Of course, I'm finding out what people want and what people need, and what their deepest frustrations and desires are, and how at Founder we can help with that. But on a fundamental level, I don't do anything now. I don't work on anything that doesn't excite me. And I guess that's what life is really all about. It's all about doing things that excite you. And that's that's what keeps you going. That's what it's, that's what it's all about. So that's it from me. Just wanted to share that little golden nugget that I took from this interview. There's a ton more around, you know, Collis has developed an epic marketplace with a ton of different websites. Envato is a very, very well-recognized startup in Australia and the world. So 
there's a lot you can learn from him. So that's it from me. If you are enjoying these episodes, please, 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 I'd love to hear from you. Nathan at foundermag.com. And also, please take the time to leave us a review. It means more than you can imagine. Okay, let's jump into the show. So today I'm speaking with Collis Tahid. Is that, is that how I pronounce your Yeah, Tahid. Tahid. <laughs> and he's the founder of Invato. They are, in my opinion, one of the most successful Australian startups. And uh, you guys have been around since 2006, right? Yeah, that's right. August 2006 we launched. Wow. And uh, they've come a long way. They have many different marketplaces. Uh they're most known for Theme Forest, Photo Dune, Audio Jungle. What are some other ones? <laughs> Video Hive. We sell a lot of After Effects. Um, yeah. yeah, Graphic River. We also run a uh, freelance marketplace in yes. Studio and Tuts Plus, which is our like learning platform. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, look, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Carlos. No worries. <laughs> so let's just start off with how did you get your job? Oh, how did I get my job as CEO of Envato? Oh, well, I started the company. That helped, I think. Um, No one else wanted the job. (laughs) Yeah, no, back in uh, um, 2006, I used to be a freelancer. And that time, Cyan, my wife and I, we wanted to start a new business, do something online so we could, like, travel around. And, um, yeah, we came up with Envato. One of the first things to do was like, well, what are our titles? <laughs> like, I guess I'll be the CEO, but you feel like such a, uh, an idiot calling yourself the CEO of a nothing enterprise. But it's kind of fun still. <laughs> Obviously, it grew over time. Now it seems a little more respectable. <laughs> so you started in 2006 with your wife. What did you first launch with? Because you have many different marketplaces now. Mm-hmm. Let's go back. To the start, humble beginnings, mm-hmm. 2006. Entrepreneurship wasn't really was it glamorized? I, I, you know, I was just heading into uni, but was entrepreneurship glamorized like it is today? Mm, not as much, I don't think. There was certainly wasn't as much um, of a mainstream startup culture. I mean, at the dot com era, I think there was a lot of stuff happening with startups, but it was a bit more, um, and it was quite flashy at that time. But then when it all spectacularly failed, I think things got a little quieter for a while. That said, there was definitely a startup community and there was definitely businesses out there talking to startups and reporting on them and whatnot. I think it was, uh, it's really come a long way though since then. <laughs> uh, a lot more resources, a lot more stuff. And um, obviously there's been like movies, the social network, <laughs> I think really, I don't know. <laughs> Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, Silicon Valley, that's right. Yeah, and I, I think that sort of stuff has really taken it up a notch. <laughs> so in 2006, you just you wanted to travel, and that was that was the main focus for Flashden. You, you just yes, that's right. So we started with Flashden, and um, that was our first marketplace for for stock Flash. We still actually run it. It's called Active Den because eventually Adobe told us to change the name, and it's a shadow of its former self. Um, but yeah, uh, at that time, Cyan really wanted to travel. We just got married, and she was like, "We should travel." Um, all these freelance clients, they're really like, "Wow, it's a bit of a drag." So we thought, "Why don't we?" I mean, back then, actually, now I've since realized that you can freelance online, but at that time, that did not occur to us we were just like well i guess freelancing and traveling is not not going to work i had always wanted to start a business and i had been selling stock flash already on another stock marketplace so Mm -hmm. we had some ideas about how it would work kind of seen it knew that people would buy stock flash um, and it observed another marketplace and learned how it worked and yeah so i think that all kind of came together and we're like let's just go for it and we kept freelancing, actually, though, for a long time, for like a good 18 months after we started the business, just so that we had money and could live. Um, those old things. Um, and in the meantime, uh, you know, sort of built out the company. Yeah. And that's actually one thing that I guess a lot of people don't touch on is when you, you start something like a business from scratch, you have to have money coming in somehow. So you have to freelance. Like when mm. I started the magazine, I, I started it while working a full-time job and yeah, right. you, you have to, you have to make money somehow. So how did you get your first thousand customers? Mm. Okay. So the, the, in the beginning, the, um, as I said, I'd sold flash before. And so kind of knew that it could sell. Our first problem to get customers was actually to, to have, 
content to sell them, though, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Because we're a marketplace, um, and marketplaces have that whole chicken and egg problem where you need stuff to sell to the people, otherwise nobody shows up. <laughs> and you need people to buy the stuff, otherwise no one shows up to sell the stuff. We started by it's like seeding the marketplace with content that we'd made and we... Um, and we sourced, so I made a bunch of stuff, and then we hired a few people to make things and kind of tried to buy our way into having something to offer, which I think is a typical sort of marketplace strategy. I met an Uber driver not long ago who was telling me that when Uber first arrived in Melbourne, his company, his car company, was just paid extremely high rate just to be available on the app. <laughs> and even though they took no drive, like they took no rides or anything, it was just important for Uber to show we've got supply. It's kind of the same for us, but it was really important for us to have stuff on on the proverbial shelves to sell. And so we kind of made some stuff ourselves. And when we launched, uh, we got a sale in our first day, which now that I think about is quite remarkable. At that time, the the way we got people in the door was to go to, and I guess this is a kind of thing you can always do. You, you, we were looking for the places that the kind of person we wanted was going to hang out in. So we knew that uh, the only people who buy Flash are Flash designers, Flash developers. Nobody else knows how to use Flash. These days, nobody knows how to use Flash. But back then, people still used it. Um, and so we knew the target market was Flash designers. Um, and so we we're like, well, where do those people hang out? And design galleries and Flash sites was uh, was the place to go, really, for them. So we would we tried everything to reach these these people. But we one of the, the most successful strategies we had was to get either Flash Den or sort of marketing sites that we made featured in galleries. Um, so designers and Flash designers in particular would go visit the gallery and be like, oh, what's that thing? And end up somehow back at Flash Den. And it kind of uh, just became a virtuous cycle. The more people we could bring in to buy things, the more stuff got made because other Flash designers would go, oh, yeah, I'll make stuff to sell. But we're lucky in that our marketplace, the buyer and the sellers, especially with Flash, was the same person. So anyone who could buy could, in theory, go, actually, I've got this little thing that I made one time. I'll put that up for sale. So that kind of helped. That first thousand buyers came a lot from those little guerrilla tactics. We just tried all kinds of stuff, like going on forums and chatting one-on-one to people sometimes. Other times we would buy ads, make things to put into galleries. I tried experimenting with all kinds of social media traffic. Lots of the sites are not that important anymore, but back then, Delicious and Dig and uh, um, uh, yeah, whatnot, we would um, experiment with trying to get traffic in different ways. Um, I got banned from a couple of social media sites <laughs> for gaming them. Um, then I became much more legitimate in how I used them. Um, but yeah, we kind of just tried everything and uh, to see what would s- stick and just to get that early momentum, get the fire sort of going. I see. So after Flash Den, what was next? And I'm curious before we move on to that, Sometimes people say that you you have to focus on one thing. And as an entrepreneur, you always want to start all these other different things. You always have all these other crazy (laughs) ideas. How did you – was this something that you were actively gauging? Like, okay, we're we're owning the marketplace with Flash Den. Now Mm. let's move on to something else. What what advice would you give around focus and knowing when to move on to that next thing? Yeah, I think it's a good idea to focus more than we did. (laughs) I don't think we did a very good job of focusing. Uh, I was, as you say, kind of characterized exactly in your words as someone who was just like, oh, I've got this other idea. We should go do that thing. There's actually lots of ideas never even made it off the ground. I think we did a decent job of focus within our marketplace um, product. So when I say we we had a lack of focus, it's more that I think um, we just started other products as well. But with the marketplaces, uh, we spent a lot of time on Flash Dead. And once it started picking up traction, we immediately began thinking about how to split the marketplace application so that it could serve multiple niches, which was actually quite a big project and took quite a while. I can't quite remember how long, but over a year. And then we used that to, to um, get into audio and started there uh, next. Uh, with the marketplaces, we kept picking niches that nobody else was in. And I was quite convinced at that time that it was a bit of a land grab uh, in that um, there was nobody really in some of these markets. And it was important for us to establish presence quite quickly so that we could 
have that sort of first mover advantage, which I think, it, so I guess to answer your question of when should you focus, I think it's important to understand the specific opportunity you're in. For us, it felt like there was a lot of opportunity just from spreading horizontally and um, ending up in lots of different areas and then starting to go deeper in each one. But not everywhere is like that. And there is a cost, a price you pay. Like the, the, the more you spread, the thinner your resources are. Like we probably could have become profitable much, much sooner if we just stuck to Flash. But we also probably wouldn't be around today, I guess. So, um, uh, I think sometimes the team at times over the years has been a bit like, you know, we could do a really good job of each of these things if we focused more, which is true. I think long term we'll do a good job of everything. But when you spread out, sometimes you have to give a more generic experience to things or... or um, you know, you can't have as much specialty in that, that space. So, yeah, I think uh, you, you cannot focus or you can focus, but you just have to understand the cost and the benefit of each one. I see. So you, you got started to get some traction mm-hmm. with your first marketplace mm-hmm. and you guys were freelancing on the side. And mm-hmm. at you, when did you move to the next marketplace and when did you focus full time? And, and te- can you run yeah, us through yeah. how, how the company's grown? Because yeah, you, I'm at the office now. <laughs> It's such a cool office. It's it's a like it's one of the best offices I've been to in Melbourne. Oh, that's for you. sure. And you know you're you're a massive company now. So let's let's go mm-hmm. step by step on on how it's kind of mm-hmm. evolved. Yeah, sure. So and tell me if this is too much detail. In 2006, yeah. uh, February was the day we decided to start, and it took us six months to get even flashed in out the door. And during that time, so it was myself, my wife, um, my best friend joined us as well, uh, and he kind of took care of um, some of the early financial stuff. And and we hired a contract developer, and we the four of us basically worked on Flashden for those six months. We launched in August. By the end of that year, so three months after launching, we'd hit $1,000 a week in sales, um, which is quite a lot, but obviously there was four people working, so it's not that much, mm-hmm. especially when you have to pay the people who make the things. But still, it was pretty cool. That was the point where I think we realized it was going to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the course of the next year, we grew 20-fold. So by the same time the following year, uh, it was 20000 a week. So oh, wow. Was, yeah, it gone really um, quite significantly bigger. The weird thing is at the beginning of that year in 2007, I wrote this email to um, my other founders and to Ryan, our, our first developer, and I was like, this year our goal will be to grow 20-fold. <laughs> and then it happened, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm like Nostradamus of business. And the following year, I wrote, again, we're going to do it. But, of course, it did not happen again. <laughs> and I think a complete coincidence that happened that first time. But, um, yeah, so in the year 2007, uh, we continued mostly just working on Flash in that year. Uh, on the side, I started up Freelance Switch, which is a blog about freelancing, which we've since closed or well, merged into Tuts, which was another product I started at that time. So in 2007, we were mostly in theory concentrating on Flashdown, except I had a whole bunch of side projects, um, which, some of which turned into um, longer-term businesses. And in 2008 was when we managed to get Audio Jungle, which was our second marketplace up, and then shortly after Theme Forest. Once we'd broken the back of splitting the application so they could do multiple niches, we, we started churning out markets quite quickly over the next few years. Um, but that first 18 months, until about Audio Jungle came out, we were still freelancing. It just slowly um, lessened over time. We started taking a very small salary um, for a long time. Cyan and I uh, shared a $50,000 a year salary at first after we stopped freelancing. So in those early times, and to this day, it, to some extent, we were reinvesting heavily back into the business because we felt like there was a lot of opportunity, but we were doing it in a bootstrapped way. So someone has to fuel it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's basically coming out of the profits of the business in our pockets, really. But yeah, once we uh, got past that mark and started actually working full-time, I think that was uh, the next point where we really were like, this is uh, this seems to have some major legs, mm. um, which was quite exciting, as you could imagine. <laughs> yeah, and I'm curious, did you ever, guys ever think of taking outside funding? What are your thoughts between mm. you know taking capital or just bootstrapping and owning it 100% and yeah. just going um, from the ground up? It's like now that I now that we've done it, I'm really glad we've done it. But I don't know that I would do it again. <laughs> it's like I think uh, bootstrapping is quite difficult. Um, 
Sometimes you have no choice, in which case that's the thing, that's the option you take. And I don't even know if we would have had a choice. I certainly just didn't really understand the idea of raising capital or that that was a thing. As we were discussing before, startup culture is a little less like mm. fleshed out. These days there's VCs in Australia who you can talk to and incubators and all kinds yeah. of stuff. A lot of that stuff uh, wasn't around and just didn't really occur to me. I just thought that was what you were supposed to do was use your savings <laughs> and put your money in and uh, um, work as hard as you can to try to make sure the whole thing stays afloat. Unless you were uh, – like I'd read about Silicon Valley and like Google. And I was like, well, unless you're Google and obviously, yeah, you do some stuff, which I don't really understand. And those kinds of things – I mean, to this day, I always think the term sheets and stuff sounds like a scary thing. But I think you can negotiate it. And certainly if you have capital – I think that can make things work better. As with everything, there are trade-offs, though. So mm. as soon as you bring capital, um, you just have a different and uh, alternate set of expectations from whoever's given you money. More things to balance. The act of getting capital can be quite time and uh, focus intensive, just because it's it's not as you know, it's not a simple task necessarily. Um, and I think the, you can, if you're not careful, so the good thing about bootstrapping is when you have very little money, uh, your culture starts in a very economic way. You, you're forced to really think about all your decisions. Um, now, this, that's got pluses and minuses as well, but the plus of, of having a lean business is quite a good one. I think if you're flush with capital, it's a bit easier to go, oh, well, we'll just spend our way to size, um, mm. which can also be good. Oh, there's good and bad to everything. <laughs> so much nuance to these decisions. <laughs> I'm curious if you were to start a business, like let's say if you were to write, like, you know, have a clean slate, would you bootstrap from the ground up or mm-hmm. would you raise capital for an internet business that you wanted to start? I think if I, so if I was n- not me, not Envato, starting yeah. afresh today, yeah, look, I think I, maybe I would still <laughs> bootstrap. <laughs> Um, I uh, do like control, um, so I think that also yeah. matters. Um, like I, I never liked debt, and I never liked um, owing somebody else something. So the idea of um, having some other group who'd put in a lot of money, I, I think, might have always been a thing for me. <laughs> but um, but I, I, I guess I do think it's a very legitimate path to raise some capital, and as there is, it's a very um, a normal sort of thing to do. I, I think it'd be a it'd be a very viable option, which I'd certainly consider anyhow, and maybe do. So let's switch gears. Uh, you're a designer by trade. Mm-hmm. Sure am. So how did that all start? Mm-hmm. So I used to be a, I used to study mathematics of all things um, at university, uh, and really did not enjoy math very much. Uh, managed to sort of eke out my degree. Finished it, and uh, at that time, my roommate, who um, is one of the founders of the company, was a designer, and um, I kind of was like, wow, his job looks way better than my my planned job that I don't know if I'll actually be able to get. And so uh, I got him to um, teach me some basics, and I just started teaching myself um, online. Eventually, I went and did a degree in the evenings, and I worked as a, a barista making coffee in the daytime. And just, I was in like this really slow coffee shop, so I would read design magazines while I waited for customers <laughs> to come in. It was kind of a good setup, really, for uh, <laughs> an aspiring designer. Um, yeah, and that, that I, I really discovered a bit of a passion for design. I had a, a lot of imposter syndrome for a long time, uh, um, which I think is quite a common sort of thing where you you don't believe you're a real whatever. So for a long time, mm. I was like, well, one day people will realize I'm not a real designer. I'm a, <laughs> a refugee for maths. Eventually, I, I came to like, no, no, this is, uh, I am a real designer. Then I had for a long time, I'm not a real CEO. <laughs> but these days, I've come to peace with that one as well. You know, that's actually, this is an interesting point that you make because so often, yeah, people just, they feel like they're an imposter. Mm. And how, what do you think it took for you to overcome that? And do you think that while you were feeling that with being the CEO and founder, one of the founders of Invato, do you think that was a detriment to the growth mm-hmm. of the business? Mm-hmm. For me, no. I, I believe that uh, there's a lot to learn in any new field. So when it was design or later um, running a company, uh, I feel that there's a lot of things you you need to learn. And I'm not a big believer in 
you know, there's that phrase, fake it till you make it. I'm not really a big believer of fake it till you make it. I'm much more like uh, um, when you don't know, it's important you realize you don't know and you're um, actively trying to learn all the time. So for the whole period that I, I had a bit of uh, lack of confidence about being a designer, I also was a prodigious reader um, and practitioner and I was constantly trying to improve my skills until I uh, felt that I had a legitimate place as a designer. Um, it was kind of the same running the company for a long time. I was very worried that there'd be things that I didn't understand about how companies were supposed to run, whether it was um, to do with uh, how to manage people or how to lead or how to create culture or how to uh, um, manage finances or just like the whole uh, gamut of things that are involved in running a company. And I look back and I'm like, yes, I did not know those things. <laughs> that was not a, yeah. and those things are, you know, important to learn. And so I suppose for me, I, I look at it as a period where I was, um, like, I, I look at many of the years of Envato as um, being on my L plates <laughs> as a CEO. Um, like, you can be on the road, <laughs> but you shouldn't go too fast. <laughs> <laughs> you probably should warn everyone that you're on your L plates. So these days I feel like, yeah, at least I've got a provisional, maybe a full license. <laughs> but yeah, I, there is the alternative school of thought, which is, of course, you should just project confidence and go for it. Uh, it happens to not be the way I think, though. <laughs> mm, interesting. You, I'm getting a feeling you seem very casual and blasé. And, you know, just, <laughs> it just kind of happened and, you know, here we are now. But can you tell us... Tell us some some really hard lessons learned that mm -hmm. uh, the listeners and the readers can learn from your experiences. Can you, do you have maybe three action mm -hmm. items that you would give to aspiring and novice entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think the uh, early on, I didn't take uh, finance serious enough. Um, so uh, you know, accounting. Hiring a good accountant or lawyer or putting a lot of money aside for that. Like we did hire an accountant and we hired a lawyer, but I don't think I understood that these things have long-term ramifications in how you set up a business and whatnot. And later on, we had to do lots of work to unwind some early decisions just around like structuring. Like some of them were not, not that um, big a deal, but it was much more troublesome later. Of course, the the flip side is you never know whether your business is going to be successful. So it's very easy for me to say eight years later, yeah, I should totally have invested more time up front in accounting and legal. But then you sort of think, well, geez, if we spent all our money there, maybe we wouldn't have got off the ground. But anyhow, yeah, I think if I was doing it again, I would definitely, at the very least, spend a bit more time on, on those kinds of structural things. Um, especially with a global business, you kind of need to think about what's the what uh, might you want to do in the future or uh, what are the right ways to structure your ownership or you know if you want to bring in investors if you are in that sort of capital um, uh, raising what should you do there I, th I just think there's some key decisions you should make and that one I don't think in retrospect I gave enough attention to so for example we we are a company that trades in US dollars um, because everything on our marketplaces sells in US dollars, but we're an Australian company, so we pay everyone in Australian dollars. Mm. Well, and actually, we pay our sellers in US dollars as well. So, uh, anyhow, during the 2008 2009 financial crisis, um, when the currency exchange rates were changing really dramatically, I had to learn some hard lessons about uh, holding money in the currency that it's owed in <laughs> mm. because we had just been moving money back to AUD and then our sellers. Um, uh, liabilities were still in USD. It's like confusing. Even to, to this day, I still find it confusing. But it was like one of those things where I was like, oh, this stuff is serious. <laughs> you can't just, uh, you know, it doesn't always just work out. So, yeah, I think uh, taking finances more seriously, uh, thinking about currency uh, stuff was stuff I, I um, came to realize was more serious. I learned a lot about management over the years. I, I was, I think, a, a not a very good manager. Uh, probably, I still have lots to learn about being a manager, but I think that was one thing that I underestimated as well in those early years was that at the end of the day, if your company is successful and you're bringing in other people, uh, leading people, uh, giving them the things they need to develop, have a happy uh, career uh, in your company, all those things are actually quite big and they take a lot of effort it's not um, easy and you have to invest a lot of time in them um, at the beginning I was very focused on just making product but again if you go back and you sort of think well product is the thing that means you've got a business to start with 
but yeah, I think those those are three things. Uh, um, if I was doing it, I probably would take a bit more seriously: uh, people management, finance things, and just the setup and structuring. Okay, um, there's quite a few things I'd like to unpack there. Mm. Certainly around management and leadership. What advice would you give? Mm-hmm. There was well, it's, a, it's pretty broad. So, uh, um, I think uh, for a long time I didn't really understand that. It's a good idea to talk to everybody often. It just seems kind of sensible now. But, you know, meet with all your staff, check in on what they're trying to, what their goals are, um, how they're trying to develop, what their um, aspirations are with the company, what they need, how you can unblock things. I think um, early on I was quite focused on what I wanted us to accomplish rather than, I think as a manager and leader, some of your time at the very least, or if not most, should be towards just clearing a path for your team to, to execute. And I think that probably could be something I, I could have and sh- probably still could do better at. I think for a long time I wasn't quite sure what uh, level of delegation and um, responsibility to give people. So, uh, you know, how much context versus how much direction. Um, and it depends a bit on the person and depends on the situation. Over time, as the company's gotten bigger and the team more senior, I do much more um, delegation and just, you know, here's the context, how do we get there? Versus in the early days, it was a bit more directional. And that's maybe just, a, maybe that's always the way it is. But I think I could have done better there. Other things about managing... Yeah, just, uh, I guess, understanding what's important. Uh, Like, for example, early on, I used to think what hours a person worked was really important. I don't know why. I was like, oh, you know, um, when they show up is important. Actually, over time, I've realized, well, not really. The uh, results they produce, the outcome is important, not kind of how busy they look, or um, Mm. which I think is just a a sort of a trap of, um, uh, like, convincing yourself something, someone is productive if they look productive and isn't. So we had this guy early on who used to do his best work at night. He was always in late, and actually, over time, I came to realize that didn't really matter because he did great work at nighttime. So a sort of understanding flexibility has been important. Understanding how much communication is important uh, has also um, been something I've learned over the years. And this uh, is a bit more, like less so with a very small team. Uh, when you're sort of six people in a room, you can communicate pretty easily. But uh, when you get past sort of 20 or so, um, communication starts to become more and more important. And by the, now there's 250 odd people in Voto, it becomes really important because a lot of the job becomes coordinating and all these people to make sure everyone's rowing in the same direction, so to speak. That's been another interesting lesson. Sorry, I could probably go on all day about <laughs> things to no, do with no, leading okay. this people. Is, this is great because, <laughs> you know, your company has grown really, really fast and I'm sure there's a lot to be learned. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about... Let's switch gears and talk about growth. Mm-hmm. Do you have any strategies or tactics or anything that you would like to share that that has been incremental in the growth of Envato? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's a few different things there from like uh, a low level tactics uh, in terms of like the things, uh, the very practical things we do. I think the the only real advice I have for other entrepreneurs is just to try everything because things uh, work quite differently in different businesses. Try everything and, and make sure you've got at the very least some basic analysis tools for determining which tactics, which promotions, which campaigns work better than others. Uh, you kind of need to find the thing that fits for your business. So for us, SEO and search was a huge part of growing. Um, we have user-generated content. Uh, those users optimize their pages. We have all sorts of search terms, which then come up really frequently, which leads to more search traffic, which leads to more content and kind of has this virtuous cycle. Of course, if you have an app, SEO probably doesn't really matter. <laughs> and I guess you have to think about something completely different. So yeah, I don't think there's any specific silver bullet at that level, which works. But I think the the sort of core principle of trying lots of things. And when I say trying lots of things, I mean, both sitting down and just creatively trying to think through what what other types of things could we do, but also learning from what competitors, other people in your area are doing. So, for example, I often visit inbound.org, which is yeah. like a um, social site for uh, internet marketers, and they're always sharing like 50 different ways you can do X, Y, Z. Mm. Um, it's not a bad idea to just literally try everything they tell you. It takes a lot of time. Of course, if you're bootstrapping, then you should be using time instead of money. 
so I think you had a low level trying lots of things um, and then measuring them and trying to understand which ones work for your business. At a higher level for growth, I, I think one thing that's worked well for Envato is always having an eye on the next horizon. So it's quite easy to um, be very involved in today's plan. So if I go back to 2006, if, if we'd stayed on Flashden mm. and not really thought, hey, what about next frontier and next horizon, then ultimately we would have grown, Flashden would have grown in much the same way as it did. I guess, um, which was pretty sizable. Uh, um, you know, it grew to a multi-million dollar marketplace, but then it would have shrunk in the exact same way that it has, and now it's you know back to tens of thousands. Whereas uh, we have always had uh, something that's on the boil for next year or the year after, um, and I think yeah. that that's if growth is important, um, and unless you're on, you know, every now and then someone comes up with some idea like Instagram, which just has massive growth potential just in itself and you really just need to focus focus and ride that one wave but i think for a lot of businesses you're on smaller waves and you're you're you almost need to this analogy is going to break but you need to build multiple waves together to a single wave that you can that totally didn't work but <laughs> you know i <laughs> i think there's a lot more businesses yeah. that are like invado where there isn't a single like holy moly this is the mother of all ideas mm. um and instead you're sort of piecing together and building up a business um strategically and then when you're in that frame of mind then you need to be thinking about the next frontier the next horizon yeah, okay. No, this this is great. So I'm curious just to touch on that. Is there any advice or I'm curious to hear your insight on how you guys identify these kind of opportunities and new areas mm-hmm. that are hot that you want to tap into that yeah. you think because you guys have a really big proven track record for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I think um, a big part of it is being – involved in things uh, it sounds really stupid but like uh, i think there's two approaches right like one which is maybe more um strategy consulting and management consulting uh, at the way they would approach it is almost like a bit of an academic problem of okay well these are the kinds of customers what things do they need and what spaces uh, are they in and what competitors are in those spaces and i think you can probably approach it in that sort of very rational way. The way that I've always approached it is completely not that. Um, I'm, I'm much more just uh, so like I was making Flash and I was like, wow, there's an opportunity in Flash. And I was a web designer. And uh, um, once Flash then started, I was thinking about other types of web design. And I was like, oh, WordPress is really taking off. And so I suppose uh, um, for me, it's much more about just being involved but having your eyes open with that sort of um, frame of mind of looking at opportunities so i i constantly am thinking about so as an example i constantly think about what things could be sold as a as a digital creative item whenever i'm on the internet whenever i see anything i'm like could we sell this we could probably (laughs) sell this i bet there's something we can sell here um and i think that uh sometimes just leads to opportunities Uh, often or some of them fall flat on their faces i think that's you need to be a bit at peace with um you're not going to get them all right. And then so you, you just do many small bets rather than one like, unless you're unless you're some kind of visionary. So uh, for me, I am, you know, in, in, in entrepreneurship, you sort of think of uh, there's, there's two different types of archetype entrepreneurs. There's the sort of Steve Jobs, technological visionary who's mm. like, this is the future. Um, we're just going to bet big on this future. And then there's much more the type that I see myself as just a bit more, industrious and thinking like could we sell this i think we could try to sell that and use the margins from that to sell that other thing and yeah. um it's a bit of a different approach so uh, um with that caveat that if you're like a steve jobs visionary or running instagram or whatever then maybe you just go we're just going to bet big on this thing but uh, um if you're a bit more like the type of entrepreneur that i am you look for many small opportunities you you find small ways to test and bet on them then you exploit the ones that work. And the way to find those opportunities is to actually be involved in lots of things. Um, uh, one way to not find opportunities is not to engage with the world. <laughs> you know, if you're, um, and I'm a bit of an introvert, so I'm not the type of person who goes out and meets lots of people, but I love browsing the internet and just thinking about um, how 
people are doing things and what kinds of technology they're using and where technology might go and the types of problems a person might have and how we could help solve them. And there's lots of different sort of um, frameworks I think you can use for analyzing opportunities in that sense. So you can think about the problems a person has or you can think about where technology is going or like there's, there's different uh, um, approaches you can take, but they all kind of lead to the same thing, which is... Uh, is there something we can sell? <laughs> <That's> so... <laughs> well, that's what that's really what it, like you know businesses are buying and yeah, selling. Yeah, that's right. You yeah, know, the simplest form. Yeah, that's right. And like providing some value, and uh, um, if you can provide value, then there's something you can sell. <laughs> okay, I'm curious. You said that you you do a lot of testing. So some of these marketplaces that you have started, have you started mm-hmm. others that you've just soft launched and they didn't take off? Um, we launch categories constantly. So that's the the way we found to test things. So for example, uh, we run Code Canyon, which is um, uh, quite a substantial marketplace for WordPress plugins and PHP scripts and all kinds of things. Mm. Um, but before we launched Code Canyon itself, we started with just a single category on ThemeForest, which we'd already were running. So we added a PHP scripts category and then a JavaScript category. And we're like, hey, this seems to be a bit of action let's uh grow it out as more categories spin it off as its own thing so i think uh ah. that's probably been the main way we've tested and there's been lots of categories which just didn't go anywhere <laughs> um, at one point we launched audio personal music tracks which was a stupid idea in retrospect because <laughs> itunes completely <laughs> annihilated that market um recently we launched type engine themes which hasn't taken off yet yeah, we we test constantly. So we put out, I don't know how many categories a year, but quite a lot um, ah. and see if any of them pick up. So you've got a, fa- a good foundation and then you just kind of build on that yeah. and then to see what takes and then just keep building yeah. on top of that foundation. And in that sense, when we launched Flash 10, we launched with four categories on Flash 10. Obviously, one of them was Flash, but we also had audio, video, and pixel fonts. And when audio got a little bit of traction, we spun that out to be an audio site and later video to be its own site. Um, so, yeah, I think in some ways having your first product uh, as an entrepreneur is the hardest one. I think because you're, you're building some kind of audience, some kind of um, business framework. But once you have some audience and some resources, you can use that audience to test other ideas and you can try to build off it. Mm. I'm curious, how often do you guys seek user feedback and stuff like that? Are you always talking to your customers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. We um, Because community is quite an important part of uh, Envato, we, we have some very large... Uh, forums which are are quite um quick (laughs) yes active in the feedback you get um for every new feature we hear um from our especially our sellers our authors but also there's there's a reasonable number of buyers on there we also do um surveying for different types of features testing with um qualitative data so um you know interviews and things like that but also quantitative in that we we do a b tests and and see how product features or changes actually impact revenue. I think testing is, is definitely an important thing. Feedback from customers is an important thing. Um, and at some level, intuition, I think, also factors in there. Mm. And in the early days, did you do a lot of customer development? Mm-hmm. Yeah, more with the sellers, the authors. Uh, again, our community started from day one, really. We had uh, forums. They were not super active at first, but they rapidly became active uh, um, as sellers started making more money. So we we always had that feedback cycle, but it, I don't think we really started engaging buyers much until quite recently. We were quite focused on the seller side of the market, which was good in the sense that uh, the sellers um, had a, often a good sense of what their buyers wanted as well. So... But yeah, I think that's been something we've gotten better at over time. Okay. Interesting. Um, look, we have to work towards wrapping up. There's a couple more things <laughs> I'd like to touch on. That was, what's it like starting a business with your partner? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it works for everybody because there's been a lot of people who have been like, whoa, that's not a great idea. But uh, for me, it, uh, I thought it worked really well. It, um, I mean, it's not even just my partner. My big brother uh, um, is also a, a director of Envoto and my dad as well. So um, at one point, my little brother was doing support here as well, but then he became a doctor. 
And so he completely wasted his life, obviously. <laughs> we should have stayed <laughs> in the internet game. Um, yeah, so uh, it's it's not just partner, but uh, lots of family as well. Uh, I think... Um, yeah, well, what's that like? Can you say yeah. <laughs> I think we're, like, it has some challenges in the sense that uh, you're... Um, uh, a few different things happen. One, you, you often never switch off. So um, when I'm hanging out with my family or my wife, whatever, we'll still sometimes just be talking about Envoto. Uh, that kind of works okay for me as I'm um, slightly obsessive and I'm probably thinking about Envoto anyways. Um, but I think that there's definitely a factor of not being able to switch off. I think it's, it's nice in the sense that... Uh, so Cyan and I, like I use her as a sounding board a lot for things and um, she's a good, uh, she reads most of my communications before they go out and she's a good sounding board for ideas I've got or plans, uh, um, has put to bed some of the stupider plans I've had over the years. <laughs> um, she's also a good project manager so I think we have quite complementary uh, skill sets. I think that's quite important in your founding team uh, whether they're related partners or not mm. uh, you kind of need um, well you need a couple things one is trust I think is quite important with a founding team it doesn't need to be you know the trust you have between husband and wife or whatever <laughs> but I think trust at its core is quite important um, and then complementary skill set so for myself my big brother my best friend my dad my wife we all have kind of complementary skill sets which works quite well we've always been fairly clear about the leadership of the business and how that should work and I think that's meant it's gone quite smoothly I think can uh, you can have a lot of contention if it's not clear so with new founding teams uh, the kinds of advice I often give them is to make sure that it's not just three people who can all do exactly the same thing they've yeah. got you know different sets of skills that um, they have some clarity about who's kind of uh, leading or making the ultimate decisions. Uh, like for us, we, we still discuss everything. We still uh, build consensus and whatnot. But at the same time, we also have some clarity on at the end of the day um, as CEO, I will often choose the direction and I think everyone's okay with that. And that's, that's good. Um, I, I think if, if, you know, you've got very different ideas about what your business is going to do. That can be not too good. And then, of course, um, to find people you you like and trust. Um, you're going to spend a lot of time with them. It's a good idea to <laughs> like them. Um, I enjoy seeing my wife all the time, so that's good. Happy to work with her. But, yeah, it's worked for me. Don't know if it would work for everybody. <laughs> okay, interesting. Two last questions. One around... You said you have a lot of ideas. Uh, how do you capture those? What tools are you using? Yeah, right. I, I write a lot down in, in notebooks and moleskins. I have, I don't know, dozens and dozens. You can see a whole bunch of them in my... Um, that's not even... That's like one-fifth of them. Um, so I've got lots of old moleskin notebooks which have uh, all kinds of scribblings. Um, but for me, actually, I find that the, the best ideas keep coming back over and over, if that makes sense, like a whole... Both in that I fixate on them, but also just um, if something's a good thing. Like when when we were planning Theme First and, yes. um, and selling WordPress themes, I just kept coming across uh, stuff about WordPress. So, you know, um, other people selling themes or it's rising popularity or I'd read about it. or And it would just keep coming up until I felt like, geez, this is like a, um, an option we should really jump on because it's, it seems to have some legs. Whereas some things are just like, oh, yeah, what about blah, blah, and then nothing ever pops up about it again. It's like, well, maybe that wasn't this burning need in the world. <laughs> I see. And these moleskins and all these notes, how often do you look at them again? Yeah, right. Uh, I will periodically review my old ones, often in mild horror of like, oh, my God, <laughs> what was that plan? Um, or amusements. Um, so not that regularly. I, I uh, will review my like current notebook over and over while I've got it, though. So yeah. um, And sometimes the one before. But I have to admit, I don't go back in time too often. And usually the things I find in there are not, not as brilliant as I thought they were when I wrote them. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, we have to work towards wrapping up. One last question. Was there any advice, any words of wisdom that you'd like to finish off this conversation with? Oh, was it? the pressure. <laughs> yeah, look, I think for um, entrepreneurs, the probably the main thing I always tell people is that it's a good idea just to get started. Like this, uh, I think if you overthink it, there's so many things that you can end up worrying about or um, considering and 
some of them are actually kind of important, but if you can find that um, that core of your business, like a product that actually has achieved some sort of market fit, a lot of the other stuff you can figure out in some way over time. Like you'll learn more about running a business or you'll figure out how to um, how to capitalize the business or you'll figure out what to do about its structure or whatnot. If you don't get that that fundamental fire started though, then not much else matters. And the only way to start a fire is to try starting one. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I often just say, well, you know, jump in. You can always jump back out and jump back in again later. <laughs> um, there's no rule against that. <laughs> Awesome. One last question. I'm, I'm really curious. One last one. One last one. How did you? How do you know when you obtain product market fit? Oh yes, it's a um, tricky one. Yeah, that is a you. tricky one. <laughs> yeah, look, I guess it depends on on different products. So for us, the the fit um, seemed clear when people started buying, and that's one of the benefits of a business with um, revenue um, is that. Once people start giving you money, then you've usually got the fit. Um, I think for what's trickier is is um, businesses that are much more intangible. Um, like social media is a good example of one where, mm. in order to generate revenue, eventually you need to get massive traction. And so I think you need to have quite different barometers for different types of businesses. The only other thing I think is uh, you shouldn't confuse product market fit with um, something that you have forced into existence. So, for example, if you've bought so much traffic that some of it's converting that's not the same as people uh flocking to your product and um and buying it even if like i would rather people came organically and bought less than you are acquiring traffic and then buying more like um the the former would indicate more fit it would indicate people are more willing to go out of their way to try to get to your product or to give you money than if you are um because at some level, you know, you think about Nigerian spammers or just general yeah. email spammers. They operate on the principle that if you put something in front of enough people, some people <laughs> will do surprising things and go, yes, I will send my money to this yeah. bank account. And uh, you just need to be wary that you don't accidentally make that mistake with a new business that you're like, look, we, we bought so much traffic that some of it's converting. I think you just need to be realistic about the... Um, the cost of achieving the fit that you seem to be getting. And um, with that caveat in mind, then yeah, I think revenue or often it's you know views or traffic. You kind of need to figure out what the right metric is for the different business. Awesome. Well, look, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking uh, the time. You. It was an absolute pleasure talking. With oh, you. good. Oh, good. It was a pleasure. <laughs> really fun. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.